It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. Search and rescue authorities in Yakutat say unusually high flows on the Sea-Tuck River late last week claimed the lives of two visiting fishermen when their skiff flooded and capsized. A third passenger on the boat was safely rescued. KCAW's Tosh Kimmel reports. Authorities have identified the two deceased men as Michael Hunt Sr. of Milford, Pennsylvania, and Richard Cowell Sr. of Port Jarvis, New York. A third passenger on the boat, Douglas Cohen, survived the incident. All three men were frequent visitors to Yakutat, and both Hunt and Cowell were well-known in the community. The Yakutat Police Department received word at around 9.45 a.m. on Friday, September 24th, that a boat had capsized on the Sea-Tuck River approximately nine miles outside the city. Yakutat Police Chief Jim Capra says the men were traveling upriver in a 15-foot jet boat when the skiff became pinned while attempting to avoid logs in the river. Yeah, I've talked to this survivor, and he's given a a pretty detailed account. Um, uh, The water had risen to, not flood stage, but a very high stage overnight. They probably had experience at that river level, but the flows are, are probably twice as fast, and the river's normally not very fast, but it is always full of log jams and and it looks like they misjudged the speed of the current. Capra said the boat crashed into a pile of logs and it began taking on water and capsized. Doug was pinned for a short while but was able to get himself out. Uh, Michael was pinned just downstream on that same log jam, the same log the boat was on and, uh, and didn't make it. A pair of sport fishermen passing by spotted both the boat and Hunt, but were unable to retrieve him due to the strong current. It was just too dangerous with the current. Um, So they went downstream looking for anybody else or any debris, and they found Doug, uh, got Doug to the landing, and raced into town. The fishermen called first responders, who quickly organized a search. According to Capra, a group of volunteer firefighters, searchers, and EMS retrieved Hunt's body around two hours after the initial incident and continued the search for Cowell. We were able to get a significant portion of that logjam cut away um, and found, other than a couple of small items, no sign of, uh, of Richard. Uh, so we concentrated on the high-probability search areas uh, with probes. Um, poles and an underwater camera on a probe looking under and through the log jams um, in the high probability areas. One of the search teams found Cowell's body on Monday near the accident site. Capra says over 50 volunteers and first responders aided in the search and rescue efforts, which took four days. Cohen was taken to the Yakutat Community Health Clinic to be evaluated and later released. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Tosh Kimmel. No new coronavirus cases were reported in Sitka on Wednesday, and one new hospitalization was reported on the state's COVID dashboard. With no new cases, Sitka's case rate has slipped to 32 cases reported over the last week, but that's still considered high risk. Sitka will remain in high risk until fewer than nine cases are reported over a seven-day period.
Three new COVID cases have been reported in Yakutat so far this week, according to a press release from the Yakutat Public Safety Department issued on Thursday evening. Eight cases are currently active, and many cases reported over the last three weeks have since recovered. Yakutat Police Chief Jim Capra says the newest cases don't seem to suggest additional community spread. Uh, they've all been in. They've all been folks who were quarantined as close contacts or, you know, with family members. Uh, so we don't seem to have any spread outside of those circles. It's kind of the, the folks you would expect. Some of the cases in Yakutat's recent outbreak have been associated with the school system. The elementary school has been closed since September 21st, and the high school since September 28th. Capra said unless there's another spike in cases, the elementary school will open on Monday, October 4th, and the middle school and high school will reopen on October 13th. Alaska is looking at getting into the carbon credits game. It's looking into hiring a consultant to draw up a plan to set aside some of the state's forest land to offset climate change in return for cash. But as Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, the move comes with a twist. It's actually part of a wider Dunleavy administration effort to help the state prop up its oil industry. The Dunleavy administration is eyeing a carbon credit program on state forest lands. Alaska Native corporations have publicly vaunted windfalls in the tens of millions as some pivot from commercial logging to being paid to keep trees on their land standing. Sea Alaska is one example. It and others went into partnership with oil giant BP in 2019. But Alaska's Revenue Commissioner Lucinda Mahoney says that's not where the idea came from. Um, what we are looking for is to establish a program that enables the state of Alaska to communicate to the public that responsible development and management of our lands exists. And we especially want to communicate this to many of the banks on Wall Street that prohibit investment in the Alaska Arctic oil and gas projects. She's referring to pressure by major lenders that have effectively ruled out investments in new Arctic fossil fuel projects over concerns about impacts on the environment indigenous peoples, and climate change. But where do carbon credits come in? Mahoney says corporations have carbon bills to pay. That is, they make pledges to offset their environmental impacts. And they do this by purchasing credits on one of the global carbon registries. And we are hopeful and optimistic that should some of our Alaska lands be placed into those registries, that individuals or corporations would purchase those. Mahoney says the state could use the profits to pay off some of the $600 million it owes in tax credits to Alaska's small oil and gas producers and their creditors. If we owe a bank $100 million in tax certificates, the bank could then say, instead of the cash, I would prefer that I receive a carbon offset value that is the equivalent, or maybe there's a premium markup on it, of the tax certificate. There is precedent for a state setting aside forest land for carbon credits, says Morgan Higman. She's a fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., studying energy security and climate change. My initial reaction is like it could work. Um, I think the, the sort of deeper question whether it's really a greenifying kind of project, you know, there's a lot of concern about program integrity with these kind of things. In other words, carbon credits can make money. But she says whether they actually make a dent in carbon pollution is up for debate. So the, the question is kind of, are, are we doing this to like diversify our revenue streams? 
cool. That's great. If we're doing this to like reduce emissions in a meaningful way, like it's a little less clear that that's gonna be super effective. Pivoting from timber sales on Alaska state forests would be a departure from the government's usual approach, timber sales. But the state's holdings are small compared to the Tongass and Chugach national forests. The Dunleavy administration is now shopping for a consultant to estimate the potential for carbon credits on state lands. The contract is worth up to a half million dollars, with the first report due by the end of the year. Mahoney, the revenue commissioner, says the state gets about a half million a year from proceeds from logging on state land. After we've gone through and done some analysis with the consultant, it may be that we stop doing that. We allow the trees to grow so that they can um, help continue to produce the carbon offset. It's not clear what industry's position would be on a policy that could restrict intensive logging on some state forest lands for a minimum of 30 to 40 years. The Alaska Forest Association declined to comment, and nobody from the Resource Development Council had anything to say either. But conservationists who have sometimes challenged state timber sales in court welcomed the news. Guys like John Shane, a forestry ecologist who's worked for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in Audubon, Alaska. I see tremendous potential of uh, carbon credits. He says Alaska's old growth stands of trees are worth more in the long term, standing as carbon storage as the planet continues to heat up. I mean, this is one of the best natural uh, opportunities to mitigate climate change that there is. A policy paper released this week to Coast Alaska says the Dunleavy administration projects carbon credits could earn the state anywhere from 500000 to $20 million in new revenue. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. This year's permanent fund dividend will be $1,114. Alaskans who filed electronically and chose direct deposit will receive the PFDs the week of October 11th. Those receiving a paper check will start to receive their dividends the week of October 25th. The amount is $14 higher than the number estimated by the legislature. Lawmakers set the budget for PFDs before they knew how many people would receive them. The state estimated that 643,000 Alaskans will receive dividends. 90% of Alaskans filed electronically this year, which is a record. Official U.S. Census data reports Wrangell lost a tenth of its population over the last decade. Wrangell's Economic Development Director Carol Rushmore says she was shocked when the borough received the 2020 figures. It doesn't make sense when you look at our housing situation and, and other factors within the town. We just, we just don't believe that, what, there was that much of a drop. The Census Bureau's own 2019 Wrangell population estimate showed about a 10% increase in the number of people living in the borough. The State Department of Labor's population projections, published in April of last year, also show Wrangell's population staying about the same as the community's 2010 count. Rushmore says she thinks the count could be artificially low for two main reasons. One is the COVID-19 pandemic, which delayed the census and forced reductions to in-person survey work. The other reason is the census reliance on its own online mapping of residences across the country. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.